All right, good morning. What a great day in God's house, amen? Uh, Before we get into the word this morning, and this will be the last message in this series, I want to take a moment. If you volunteer in any capacity here at Life Church, I want you to just stand for a moment. I want you to remain standing until I tell you to sit down, okay? So anyone that's here, you volunteer on a regular basis here at Life Church. Can we give all of our volunteers an applause this morning? Can we just recognize them? Yesterday was our fall ministry summit. We had all of our volunteers together, at least many of them, a great number of them. And we had a great time yesterday morning at our South Campus as we talked about different things involved in ministry. And uh, this weekend in the services, we just wanted to have our volunteers stand so that you're able to identify them. Look at we could not do the work of ministry around here that gets done without our volunteers. Their tireless efforts, their selflessness, I'm telling you, it's amazing. The way they give of their time and their talent. And we want to just recognize that. The Bible says, give honor to whom honor is due. And uh, we want to give honor to our volunteers here at Life Church, both at our north and our south campuses this weekend, and just say thank you. Uh, from Crystal and I, from our staff, we want to say thank you for all that you do to make this place run, to make this place great, to help us to accomplish the vision which has transformed lives. And so thank you very much, and I want to just pray for you. Father, I just pray right now for every one of our volunteers who give of their time selflessly, their talent. God, I am asking you, as they have poured out for you on the behalf of others, that you would pour into them everything they need. God, I know that as these volunteers stand in this auditorium today, there are needs in their own lives. But God, as they have been faithful to minister in your house, I pray that you would be faithful to minister to all of their needs, to meet all their needs, to bless them. God, I'm asking you to open up the windows of heaven and just pour out a blessing on them that they can't contain for all of their hours of service. God, we thank you for these gifts that you have given to this body. Lord, go above and beyond in pouring yourself out to them. In your name I pray, amen. Thank you, volunteers. You may be seated. You guys are amazing. All right, so in the last message of this series, I want to tackle one of the biggest hot potato issues in our culture today. It's an issue that is very, very emotionally charged with people. And the reason I'm dealing with this question, this issue, because it's also an issue today in our culture that has caused many, many, many people to reject Jesus Christ. Up front, I want to say this. I don't have all the time that I need today because it would be a multiple message series that I could do to go into all the depth that I would like to explain and to unpack uh, this very sensitive issue. In fact, I had originally planned to speak on a completely different topic today, a completely different question, And Tuesday morning when I came in and was in prayer, I felt a check in my spirit about what I was going to preach, and I felt like the Holy Spirit said, here is what I want you to do. I want you to speak on this topic. And so today, uh, I I can't deal with the breadth of this topic. I'm going to be pretty narrow in my focus, because what I want to do is I want to answer one single question this morning. And the question is this, is God homophobic? Is God homophobic? Now, other than using the word homosexual, there won't be any explicit language or descriptions in my message. 
uh, so you don't have to worry about that. But because this is such a sensitive issue, uh, if you're in here and you have children and you feel like you don't want them to hear about this topic, I want to just give you fair warning before I start this morning. Uh, but I think it would be all right, but that's certainly up to you as a parent. So I want us to begin this morning by reading three different passages about homosexuality in the Bible. And the first one is found in the book of Leviticus, chapter 18, verse 22. So if you would turn there this morning, we're going to go to several different verses. They're all going to be on the screen, I believe, uh, so that you can follow along. But Leviticus 18, 22 says this, do not practice homosexuality. Having sex with another man as with a woman is a detestable sin. Then Leviticus 20.13 says, If a man practices homosexuality or having sex with another man as with a woman, both men have committed a detestable act and they both must be put to death for they are guilty of a capital offense. And then finally, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10 says this, Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? So don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin, those who worship idols, those who commit adultery, those who are male prostitutes, those who practice homosexuality, those that are thieves, those that are greedy, those that are drunkards, those that are abusive, those people that cheat, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. All right? So those are the three scripture passages this morning. Now, in our culture today, the word homophobic, is defined this way. It's defined as the irrational fear and hatred of homosexuals. So what that means is many people in our culture who are reading the Bible and reading those verses, by the way, those aren't the only verses on homosexuality, but I just chose three. People in our culture that are reading the Bible and what it has to say about homosexuality immediately label God as homophobic. In other words, they immediately assume that God hates homosexuals because the Bible, and God in particular, doesn't condone the behavior of homosexuality. So our culture has come to believe this, that it is absolutely impossible to hold a position that says that homosexuality is not God's best plan for mankind without simultaneously hating and being prejudiced toward homosexuals. That's what our culture believes. It goes on to believe this. Therefore, anyone that would dare to believe that homosexuality is not God's best plan for man is automatically labeled as being homophobic. And that's the predicament that we find ourselves in as Christians today. I believe that homophobia and believing that homosexuality is not God's best plan for man are two entirely different issues. But what has happened is our culture has taken those issues and intertwined them as if they were one, but it's not true. So in order to answer the question for this morning, which is, is God homophobic, we have to start really with another question. And that question is this, is homosexuality worse than any other sin? Because when you read the Bible, no matter how you slice it, the Bible is very clear that homosexuality is a sin. Now, I am certainly aware, as are you, that there are many of people that wouldn't agree with that. There are many people that interpret the Bible a different way. 
They interpret the Bible to say that homosexuality is not a sin, that homosexuality is acceptable, that we've interpreted the Bible wrong. But you can't come up with those interpretations without doing some major, major scriptural gymnastics. I mean, you got to bend backwards and around and over and contort yourself in order to come up with those interpretations because you're taking the scripture out of context. When I look at the issue of homosexuality, I believe this, that homosexuality is an inconvenient truth. It's an inconvenient truth for our culture. An inconvenient truth is defined like this. It's something that is true, but it's certainly not convenient. There are a number of inconvenient truths in the Bible. Okay? There are things that God has asked us not to do as human beings because they're not good for us. And we find that to be very inconvenient. In other words, our flesh doesn't like those scripture truths. For example, the truth that we need to keep sex inside the boundaries of marriage. Our flesh doesn't like that. Why? Because it's inconvenient. Why? Because I don't want to have to wait to have sex. Our culture says, I want to be able to have sex because my body is mine. I want to be able to do it wherever I want to do it, whenever I want to do it, with whomever I want to do it, and I don't want to have to wait because that's inconvenient. I want to satisfy my desires now, right? Isn't that what our culture says? Or how about the inconvenient truth that if I don't forgive others, the Bible says that God won't forgive me. Ooh, that is very inconvenient. Because there are times that I don't want to forgive people, right? My flesh says, I want revenge. They really hurt me. Don't you understand that, God? Homosexuality is not God's best plan for men and women. But if you read the text carefully in Leviticus and 1 Corinthians, you'll discover that God is not and never does single out homosexuality as the sin above all sins. God prohibits all sexual relations that are outside of the husband-wife marriage relationship. That's just the way it is. That's an inconvenient truth to a lot of people. The Bible refers to all of these activities as being detestable not just homosexuality. By the way, it's important for us to understand that when the Bible says that homosexuality is detestable or it says greed is detestable or adultery is detestable or whatever other thing, it's not referring to the person, it's referring to the act. The act is what is detestable. It's never, ever, ever, ever the person. Ever, right? You say, well, why are these acts detestable? Not just homosexuality, but all of the sexual acts. Because they end up hurting people. So whether that's cheating people, gossiping about people, being greedy, lying, all of this stuff hurts people. And God hates it when people get hurt. And he said, those things are detestable to me. Now, I want you to turn to the book of Romans chapter 1. And I want you to look at Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. I'm not going to read it because I don't have the time but I want you to have it open, and, and I want you to just kind of glance through it. 
At first glance, it would be easy to look at Romans chapter 1, which is a very powerful chapter, by the way, and to think that Paul is on some kind of angry rant against homosexuals. It's like, wow, man, he's really tearing them up there. But if you look closer, if you look at not just verses 18 through 32, but you look at the entire first chapter, you will discover something. That Paul has placed homosexuality into a bigger context. And the context is this. Paul is talking about anyone who distorts God's truth for their own gain is wrong and is sinning. In fact, in verse 18, it says this. God shows his anger against what? All sinfulness. And anyone who suppresses the truth in any way or knows the truth and deliberately ignores it. What is Paul doing? He's making a case in Romans chapter 1 to his readers that any sin in our lives that is left unchecked, that is not dealt with, will begin to snowball. And what will happen is it will move those people further and further and further and further away from the Creator until they can no longer distinguish truth from lies. We have a much bigger problem than homosexuality in our world today. The problem that we have that is bigger is that we can no longer discern the truth from the lie. Because people have lived in disobedience to God's laws for so long that now we're calling wrong right and we're calling right wrong, aren't we? And that's what Paul is talking about. That's his point in Romans chapter 1. And it's true at the end he gets a little more specific and he has to deal with the issue of homosexuality, which we'll come back to in a moment because it's a big deal at that time in the Roman Empire. But now what I want you to do is I want you to look down just a little bit to Romans chapter 2 verse 1. Because sometimes it's easy for us to read Romans 1, 18 through 32, and say, yeah, Paul, go get them. Go get those people. Let them have it. That's right. They're not going to heaven. Blah, 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 right? We get all amped up about this stuff. But it's a setup. It's a setup. Paul is setting his readers up for chapter 2, verse 1. You may think that you can condemn such people. But listen to this. Paul says, you're just as bad. And you have no excuse. Because you know the word, you have the word. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you are just condemning yourself. For you who judge others do these very same things. And we know that God, in his justice, will punish, what does it say? Anyone for doing these things. Wow. Since you judge others for doing these things, why do you think that you can avoid God's judgment when you do the same things? And I love verse 4. Don't you see how wonderfully kind and tolerant and patient that God is with you? And then Paul says, does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that it is his kindness, that it is his love, that it is his mercy that leads us to repentance? Ouch. Paul is reminding the Christians that we are not to judge, we are not to condemn others because of their sin. Because all sin is the same to God. One sin is not worse than another. And yet it's interesting how we often treat homosexuals differently than we treat drug addicts 
or alcoholics or habitual liars or gossipers or people who have violent anger and temper issues, right? Have you ever wondered why? I think whether consciously or subconsciously, it's because we were like the Christians of that day and we believe that somehow their sin, that sin, is worse than our sin. But the Bible never says that. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, which we read earlier, puts all sin on the same level. It places greed and lying and gossiping in the very same sentence as homosexuality. And Romans 3.23 says this, that all have sinned and all have fallen short of the God's requirements. The Bible tells us this, that any sin, any sin, doesn't matter what it is, any sin, all sin, will keep us out of heaven if we don't receive Christ's forgiveness, right? So in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is reminding believers who have been prone to judge, to point fingers at others, remember, that is what some of you were. That's what you were. I find it interesting, the lack of grace and love that is often shown towards homosexuals and the homosexual community by some Christians really just demonstrates that they've forgotten what Jesus saved them from. See, the point is that our question is, is God homophobic? Does God hate homosexuals? And the answer is no. God does not hate homosexuals. And I'm trying to show you that he doesn't single them out in Scripture. That homosexuality is contained within a long list of sins that God calls detestable. God does not hate homosexuals. And I don't care if there are some Christians on street corners or at rallies and they made their placard that says, God hates homosexuals. You're going to burn in hell forever. God does not hate homosexuals. He does not. Just like he doesn't hate adulterers and he doesn't hate gossipers and he doesn't hate drug addicts and he doesn't hate alcoholics. How is it that we don't have a problem believing that, but somehow when it comes to the homosexual issue, we do? God is against all sin. Why? Because it leads to a quality of life that is below what Jesus died to give us. That's why he doesn't like all of these sins. And yet, in our humanity, we tend to focus on homosexuality. But it's really interesting that in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, God uses the same exact language to condemn liars, gossipers, adulterers, abusers, and cheats. Nobody gets upset about the language he uses with those issues or believes that those issues are being singled out. Because again, this is an emotionally charged issue in our culture. Why? Because we want to do what we want to do. By the way, in the Old Testament, there were a number of sins that were punishable by death. So when we read out of Leviticus 20, 20 that homosexuality was punishable by death, people say, that's, that's awful, that's, I'm not going to serve God like that. It wasn't just homosexuality. It was adulterers that were put to death. It was, get this, children who cursed their parents. It was those who enticed people in Israel to worship false gods. It was rapists. It was, in fact, there were 28 sins in the Old Testament that were punishable by death. 
Homosexuality is just one of the 28. Now, let me quick stop here, state this. I can't elaborate because it would take too long. But from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the punishment changes from death, okay, to discipline, right? So in the Old Testament, you have 28 sins that are punishable by a capital death offense. But in the New Testament, we move from death to discipline. Aren't you glad? Yeah, because some of you wouldn't be around anymore. Think about that, seriously. Now, you say, well, why? Why does it move from death to discipline? Remember what we've been talking about in so many issues in this series, that civilization was evolving because of God's laws. So God is dealing with things differently now. Remember, he's bringing civilization from chaos and barbarism, right? Where everybody's killing everybody and God says an eye for an eye. Remember we talked about that was revolutionary? And then in the New Testament, Jesus said it's no longer an eye for an eye, but now, turn the other cheek, revolutionary again, advancement of civilization, the same is occurring here. God is bringing civilization from chaos and barbarism to civility and peace. For example, let me just give you one example in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is dealing with an issue in the church at Corinth. There is a man who is sleeping with his stepmother, right? And he refuses to stop his sinful behavior. He's been talked to by the elders of the church. He's been approached. He refuses. Now, in the Old Testament, that would have been a sin punishable by what? Death. But in the New Testament, what does Paul say? Paul says, here's what you're to do then. If he won't listen, you are to put him out of the church and you're to cut off fellowship with him. You're to discipline him, right? So we've moved from death to discipline. So now that we've established the fact that God doesn't hate homosexual people, he's not singling them out, okay, as that sin being any worse than any other sin, I want to take a moment to give the short answer as to why God is against homosexuality. As you read the Bible, God is very clear about his boundaries for all sexual relationships. And so God designed heterosexual marriage between a man and a wife to be the only place where sexual intimacy was permitted, okay? God created marriage between a man and a woman for several purposes. Let me give you two. Number one, for procreation. We get that one, right? It's hard for a man and a man or a woman and a woman to procreate. Doesn't happen, right? So for procreation. But the second reason of several others is that God wanted to create a safe, secure place where two people to, could experience the deepest intimacy possible in a human relationship without the fear of being used, hurt, or abandoned by the other person. Now, I understand that this weekend here and uh, in the Rockford area, in the Wisconsin area, uh, that there were probably a lot of, on Friday and Saturday night, a lot of hookups happening, right? Hookups, definition. People that just get together for the night and have sex and then never see each other again. Hookups. Well, God has set these boundaries because in every one of those hookups that happened in this area this weekend, three things happened. Somebody got used, somebody got hurt, and somebody got abandoned. And that's what God's trying to prevent. It's interesting, in Genesis when God said, it is not good for a man to be alone, he didn't create another man for Adam, he created Eve, didn't he? 
So why is our culture so upset? Because God's commands concerning sexual boundaries, sexual relationships, are restrictive. They're restrictive by design. And because they're restrictive, people don't like them because they fly in the face of our flesh and what our flesh wants to do, right? That's why it's inconvenient. Think about this. Even in a heterosexual marriage, sometime during a lifelong marriage, one spouse may at some point be tempted or have a desire for intimacy with someone other than their own spouse And what do they have to do in that moment? They have to exercise self-control, don't they? Because as Christians, we're called upon to deny ourselves, to deny our flesh, to exercise self-control over our sinful desires, no matter how we feel at the moment, because we don't live by our feelings, do we? We live by the Word of God. So here's a thought for you. Our desires do not define us, our choices do. Our desires don't define us. In other words, you and I, we have lots of desires during the week. Sometimes I have the desire to kill people. Right? Oh, you're laughing, but you do too. Now, it's not sin to have that desire, right? But if I act on it, it becomes sin, right? Yeah. So I'm, I, I'm not defined my identity. I'm not a murderer because I, I have a desire. We have all kinds of desires as human beings. So in the same vein, here's what I want you to say. One of the big arguments is that, well, homosexual people can't help it because they have same-sex attraction. They have this desire, right? Well, so do heterosexual people. They have a desire for sex with other people or outside of the boundaries of marriage. Do you get where I'm going with this? They can't act on it. You can't act on it. Right? Because our desires do not define us. Our choices do. Our culture keeps trying to tell people because you have a certain desire, that means that you're a certain way. They want to identify you. They want to label you. But you know what? That's wrong. I may have certain desires, but I don't have to act on those desires. Those desires don't become my identity. So we have all of these children, and I didn't say this in any other message, but this is a whole other sermon, but I'm just going to say it. I feel like we have a whole group of kids that are coming up, and because they have certain inclinations when they're born, people say, well, homosexual, they're born that way. No, they're not born that way genetically. But you could be born with certain inclinations, desires. Okay, all of us were born with certain desires because we were born in sin, right? And so we tell little children, oh, if you have that desire, you must be homosexual. That's not true. We, we tell little boys, if they don't want to play sports, if they don't, if they don't want a roughhouse, if a little boy says, I want to be a chef, oh, then you must be Do you see how our world tries to constantly squeeze us into its mold, this falsehood? And so it's like, well, yeah, you were born that way. You were, no, no, no. Here's what Paul says. Paul says your desires do not define you. Your choices do. We all deal with desires that are sinful. And so 
There's a great deal of teaching in the New Testament, especially in Corinthians, that deals with the issue of sexuality and self-control. Why? Because we live in a broken world that's been infected by sin. All of us have been infected by sin. We all deal with desires. And the Corinthian church, especially, was living in a highly sexualized environment. And they had a battle with temptation daily. And so Paul said to them, you need to exercise self-control because Corinth was a commercial city. Corinth was a trade roads, a crossroads. Uh, Corinth had every kind of immorality and evil that you could imagine in it. They had temples where there were literally thousands of prostitutes that the Romans uh, in that area would visit on a daily, weekly basis. And so the church of Corinth is sitting in the middle of this. They're having to battle this. And they're saying, well, it's all around us. We can't battle it. We're just going to give in. Paul says, no, you're not. You need to exercise self-control. You need to pray for strength. Because God puts the same boundaries on same-sex attraction as he puts on opposite-sex attraction. And he expects us to exercise self-control on any desire that is outside of sex within the boundaries of marriage. Can I tell you that just like today, Jesus' teachings went over like a lead balloon in his culture because they were inconvenient. People didn't like them because they wanted to do their own thing. It wasn't just about homosexuality. It was about all kinds of fleshly desires that people wanted to act on. They wanted to be able to gossip. They wanted to be able to lie. They wanted to be able to murder and envy and cheat and get jealous and all this stuff. The bottom line is there are things that our flesh wants to do that God tells us not to do. Why? Because those things will not produce the abundant life that Jesus died to give us. It is for our safety. It is for our well-being that God provides sexual boundaries. And homosexuality is just one of those guidelines. It's included in that list. It's not singled out. It's included. Not because God dislikes, not because God hates homosexuals, but because like all people, he loves them and he wants the best for them as well as for those around them, including their children. Here's what I believe. Every child deserves a mother and a father to raise them. Now, does that happen in our culture today? No. Almost 50% of the homes are single-family homes in America today. It's an astonishing rate. What does that mean for us, the church? Well, there are things that every child needs that they can only get from their mother. And there are things that every child needs they can only get from their father. That's why a marriage between a man and a wife is God's best plan. But people get divorced and we have single moms and single dads. So what does that mean for the church? That means that we, the church, have got to help. We've got to be a family. That means, guys, if you notice single moms that are in the church and they have young men, then ask permission, offer, hey, could I spend some time with, with your boy? Because that boy needs a male influence. And we could say the same thing for ladies. You seeing a single dad that's struggling to raise his, his young daughter. And, you know, he doesn't know all the things, how to braid her hair. And he doesn't know there is stuff that he can't do with her. But you could do it. You could fill that gap. You could give that young woman what she needs. And that's what it means to be the family of God, right? That we help each other. Wow, what if we did that in our community too? Isn't it funny that as human beings, we always think that we know what's best for us. 
and it gets us in trouble all the time. Think about your children, your kids. They think they know what's best, right? You probably thought you knew better than your parents when you were growing up. In fact, isn't it funny that how our kids think that we're the stupidest people on the planet till they reach the age of about 25 and their brain fully develops or they get married and they have kids of their own and then all of a sudden one day they discover, Dad, how did you get so smart all of a sudden? Right? Because the natural inclination is we all think we know what's best for us. Wouldn't it make more sense, or doesn't it make more sense, that the one that created us would know what's best for us, what's best for our design. That's why we say it's not God's best plan. He knows what's best for us. And then finally this morning, I want to talk about our response to the homosexual community. There are three ways that the church has traditionally responded to homosexuality. The first one is this, with hostility, unfortunately. There are churches, there are believers that have confused hating sin with hating people. And so they've lashed out in anger and hatred, and they've said horrible things, and they've done horrible things against the homosexual community, and they've made it known that you people are not welcome in the church, and you're not welcome in the kingdom of God. And uh, as I referenced earlier, they, they protest, and they have signs that says God hates homosexuals, none of which is true. Is it any wonder that the gay community sees the church as their enemy? You can understand why. Hatred is never, ever, ever a biblical response. Nowhere in the scripture do we ever see Jesus respond to people who are in sin with hatred or condemn, contempt or condemnation. My goodness, when Jesus comes to the woman at the well, she is head over heels in sin. She is way over her head. And when he comes to her, he doesn't condemn her. He doesn't call her out. What he does is he loves her into the kingdom. He speaks truth to her. The second response from the church in recent years has been what I'll just refer to as sloppy agape. Sloppy love. In other words, they realize, you know what? We can't be hostile toward the homosexual community. That's not what God, God wants us to love them. But in loving them, what they've done is They've crossed the line. A lot of churches now, you're reading about this in the paper, a lot of denominations, it was in the paper again this week, have compromised biblical truth and are now teaching that homosexuality in one form or another is a relationship that's acceptable to God. So in their attempt to be loving, they've let go of biblical truth. Some of them have accepted the belief that homosexuals have no choice because they were born that way. None of that stuff is true. Right? So that's been a second response. There's a third way that we can respond. I believe it's the biblical way. Speak the truth in love. That's what Jesus role modeled for us. Isn't it amazing how Jesus was 100% grace, but he was also 100% truth with people. He was compassionate and he was loving, but he never compromised biblical truth. In fact, in Matthew 19, he's very clear when he affirmed that marriage was between a man and a woman and that that was the only format that was acceptable to God. And yet at the same time, Jesus extends grace and love to those who are struggling with all kinds of sin and he invites them to follow him into a better way of living. And that's what I want to suggest that we do with those that struggle with any sin, that we invite them into a better way of living. We don't compromise God's truth. 
We extend passion. We extend love. We extend grace to those who are struggling. We can't treat homosexuals as if they were lepers. That's not what Jesus did. When Jesus encountered sinners, here's what he did. First, he wasn't afraid to hang out with them. Second, he loved them in their sinful state and he built relationships with them. And third, this is the key, he offered them something that was better than the sin that they were holding on to, that they were clutching so tightly. That's what we've got to do. We've got to offer people something better. But you see, here's the problem. When people look at the church, they're not seeing something better because of the way the church has lived. So they don't want to let go of this for this because this doesn't look appealing either. And that's where we've got to change things. Why do people hold on to homosexuality? Why do they hold on to any sinful behavior? Why do you hold on to sinful behaviors? Because we don't realize that God has something better for us. Something more satisfying, something more fulfilling. So it's hard for us to let go of this because we can't see this. Why do people find it hard to let go of sinful behavior? Because of the hurt of their past, the pain of their past, the experiences of their past, which has caused them to believe a lie about themselves and about God. There are all kinds of reasons why people find it hard to let go. And our job as believers is to love people and to demonstrate through our lives that there is a better, more satisfying way to live. That this is really better than this. That means we need to get in the mud with people. We need to be willing to walk alongside them, help them through the process of discovering who Jesus is and what his plan for their lives are. And and gang, that's not easy. That's easy to preach in a sermon. That's not easy to live out. Today, if you're struggling with homosexuality, you're struggling with any sin at all, please know this. This, Life Church, is a church for imperfect people. This is a place that you're sitting in right now for everyone who is broken. So if you don't have it all together, welcome. You're in good company. Neither do we, right? The truth is we all struggle with stuff. Maybe it's a secret sin that nobody knows about or it's secret thoughts that nobody know about that if they were projected up on the screen behind me right now, you would be horrified. We all have those, right? If people just knew what I was thinking. We all struggle, but here's the good news. God loves each and every one of you. He loves every man, woman on this planet. This is a church for broken people and of broken people who are finding healing. Why? Because of the love and the mercy and the grace of Jesus. And that's the message that we need to portray. That's what we need to understand. God is not angry at homosexuals. He does not hate homosexuals. He is wooing them. He is calling out to them just like he called out to you when you were in your sin. And he's saying, I've got something better for you. I've got a better way, a more satisfying way, a more fulfilling way. Trust me. I'm going to ask if our ministry team would come forward this morning. This morning, I'm not even going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. I just want to ask you a couple of questions that I want you to think about. The first one is this. What are you struggling with today? I know we've talked about a very specific issue, but what do you struggle with today? Is it envy? Is it anger? 
Is it unforgiveness? Is it jealousy? Is it alcohol or drugs or lust or gossip? What are the chains that are holding you in some area of your life? Where is there an area in your life that maybe today you need freedom in? Because there's something that's got a hold of you. You know, you can be a Christian and something have a hold of you. It's called a stronghold. Is there something that's got a hold of you? And you need Jesus to break that chain. You see, the compassion and the mercy of Jesus is available to you today. It's available to everyone. Because he wants to break those chains. He wants you to leave this place free today. That journey to freedom begins when we commit our lives to Jesus, when we ask him to forgive us of our sins, when we invite him into our life. And so if you're here this morning and you've never done that, I would encourage you to do that. Say, Jesus, forgive me of my sin. I invite you into my life. It's as simple as that. Hey, if the thief on the cross could just say this, remember me when you come, going, when, we go to, when you go to paradise. How difficult it can be, right? Invite him in right now. Say, Jesus, I want to be free. The first step is to receive your forgiveness. But I'm going to ask you all to stand. And we're going to open up the altars today. And Pastor Brock is going to sing the song, Break Every Chain. Break Every Chain. We've been singing about freedom this whole service, right? Now we get a chance to experience it. And so, if you need prayer, there will be people up here that will pray for you. But even more than that, I want to just encourage you, if there's something you're struggling with in your life, and you just want to spend some time with the Lord, I'm encouraging you to come and just kneel at the altar, just come stand at the altar, and just spend a couple moments before you leave with Jesus. Now, let me take the elephant out of the room. If you step forward this morning and you come to kneel at the altar or stand at the altar to deal with your stuff, we're not going to think you're a homosexual. <laughs> okay, can I clear that air? This is a call for all people dealing with all stuff. See, I know how people think. It's like, well, I'm not going to go up there. They'll think I'm... No, we won't. Because... Any messed up people here? I'm raising both hands for me. Yeah. We all have stuff that we're doing. See, we have to create a safe environment in this house where when the Holy Spirit, He may not be dealing with a lot of you right now, but there's some of you He's dealing with. We've got to have a safe environment where we can just feel free to come and we're not worried about what people think. That's what it means to be a family gang. We don't point fingers. In fact, we're thrilled every time somebody comes and gets free. Yeah. All right? So we're going to sing this song. And it, when we're done singing the song, no formal dismissal. You're free to go. But as we sing the song, if you need to just come and spend some time with Jesus, you need someone to pray with you, you need to give your life to Christ, see one of these folks, move while we're singing the song, okay? The altars are open. Don't, don't stay bound. There is no shame. There's no condemnation here. Man, get free. The table's been set in worship today and everything else. Amen. Mr. Brock.